Okay, so item one, God is looking for faith. Now, understanding the siege of Jerusalem is essential to understand the plan that Jesus has to return. Because Jesus, he will not return apart from this plan. And you're actually, in my opinion, you're seeing the setup for it right now. Now, whether that's going to happen in the time frame I think it's going to happen in or some other time frame, many people have thought that they were seeing the, the events that were going to be the precursors to this. In fact, you can look at 70 AD, and even then you can say, okay, there was much of what Jesus had told his disciples would happen in the context of the siege of Jerusalem that happened then, but not the fullness. The fullness of the siege of Jerusalem in the last days that precedes Jesus' return is the, the remnant in the nation of Israel seeing Yeshua as the Messiah. That didn't happen in 70 AD. So that's how we know that that's not the fulfillment of these passages. And there are many, once you start to see it, you can't unsee it, and you'll realize every single prophet was prophesying these same events, all of them, okay? So in, in different views of them. Okay, so, but the point of it is that God is looking for faith. So as we discussed last week, God has a plan to bring Israel to faith, and that's what we were talking about last week was the remnant of Israel, the remnant that he says they have a knowledge of him, but it's not according to the faith, and you're saved by faith. And that's what he's trying to do is orchestrate. That's what the Father's trying to do is orchestrate faith for Israel, okay? Now, his plan to save the remnant of Israel is the same as his plan was to save you and is currently to save you. He's, he's bringing you from faith to faith, strength to strength, glory to glory. He has the same exact plan to bring Israel to faith, okay? So it's really simple. And, and one of the things Ali was prophesying while she was singing was, it's better to know the author than to know the story. And the truth is, most of the people we read about that are notable, especially in like Hebrews 11 or all these places that we get this litany of faith, these people never owned a Bible. They knew God. And that's what, that's what God is doing right now is he's got the same plan to let people know him. There's really one simple plan. So when you hear the details of this, don't get lost in the details and don't separate the God who wrote this plan from the plan. Okay, because if you do that, what you'll look for is political things and you'll miss the spiritual things that they're for. Okay, so God uses the least intense means necessary. This is his plan to save everyone. He uses the least intense means necessary to reach the greatest number of people at the deepest heart level without ever violating love or free will. Free will and love, they, they require each other, okay? The, the reason for uh, free will is love, and God, he refuses to operate outside of love. In fact, the Bible says God is love. But we don't tell God what love is. He tells us what love is. So if we try to tell God what love is, then we'll find ourselves being our own God. So we let God tell us, oh, this siege of Jerusalem is actually his love. It's his patience. It's the greatest expression, honestly, of his mercy towards Israel is that he lets this happen in the city that his son is going to rule and reign from forever. So the specific way God will do this for the bride is clear. The, spe the specific way he's going to use the least intense means necessary to reach the greatest number of people at the deepest heart level without ever violating their free will. We know how he's going to do this for the bride. So last week we talked about the difference between the bride and the remnant. Do you guys remember that? Okay, so the remnant, they don't know Yeshua as Messiah yet. The bride does. And there's Jewish people that are part of the bride. There's Gentiles that are part of the bride. And there's a remnant in Israel that he's going to reach. It's the same process, but there's two different plans, okay? Two different sets of events. The same plan, two different sets of events. So for the bride, it's seven seals, 
seven trumpets and seven bulls. So when you read the book of Revelation, you're really not going to find a ton in the book of Revelation about the nation of Israel. But you are, because there's many people that are genetically Jewish that have seen Yeshua's Messiah been filled with the Spirit, and they are being talked about, obviously, in the book of Revelation. We see places where the bride ministers to Israel in the book of Revelation. So you're going to see that in Revelation 7, where you see the sealed of Israel, the you know 12,000 from all these tribes. That's where the bride touches, our, where our story in the last days touches Israel's story in the last days. You can see it in Revelation 12, where we see Satan making war with Israel. He tra- sends a flood after her, and the earth swallows up the flood, and then he goes to make war against the saints. You know, that's, that's another intersection point where we can see the story of the bride touching the story of the salvation of the remnant. But you won't see a lot in the book of Revelation about the siege of Jerusalem. That's what I'm saying. The siege of Jerusalem is like the bride, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bolts. The siege of Jerusalem is Israel's process that God is going to use to bring Israel to faith, okay? Now, in the homework or the instructions for this week, I just basically gave you one passage, which was in Deuteronomy. That passage describes why the siege of Jerusalem has to happen. And it talks about the blessing for agreeing with God's leadership in faith and then the consequences, the incremental patient in order, the way God promised Israel, if you turn away from my leadership, this is what you can expect. And it, it is, that is the siege of Jerusalem. That's the final iteration of it are the things that are going to happen in Jerusalem. So in history, this has happened before. When was the last time we got a really good record of the siege of Jerusalem? Does anybody know? The last time there's a really good record in the Bible is the Babylonian siege of Jerusalem. And and if I wanted to read a book about that where I was like, okay, give me the nitty-gritty of what happened on the streets of Jerusalem when that happened, what book would I read? Lamentations. The book of Lamentations was written by Jeremiah, who also prophesied the coming siege of Jerusalem. The book of Lamentations was Jeremiah's record of, okay, it happened. The thing I warned Israel about for all those years, I warned Jerusalem about it. They didn't listen to the warnings, and this is what happened. Does anybody know any of the details of what's in the book of Lamentations? It's awful. If you read it, you'd be like, how could a loving God let that happen? But it's because of the written judgment. It's because of what he said in Deuteronomy 28. It's because of what he said in Leviticus 26. And it's because he refuses to violate man's free will. And he says, if you want self-leadership, self-leadership is death. And I will slowly turn you over to the death of self-leadership until you come to your senses and see that I'm the God who made you. You can't lead yourself. And the consequence of self-leadership it's God's mercy that he lets it happen slowly and result in the last day siege of the, the city of Jerusalem. And it's going to be worse than the book of Lamentations. It's going to be worse. According to many passages in the Bible, it's going to be worse. The book of Lamentations is describing something worse than the, the Hamas attack that happened in Gaza. Something worse even than the Holocaust. And so we have to understand there's something coming to the nation of Israel and specifically the city of Jerusalem that's unlike anything we've ever seen. And we can see the setup for it right now. And God has an answer for Israel and he has an answer for the bride and he has decided that our fates are intersecting 
And we can read about our side of that equation in the book of Revelation, and we can read about Israel's side of that in all these passages about the siege of Jerusalem, but they're going to happen simultaneously. This is the important thing that I feel like God wants me to stress to you, okay? So, uh, God is orchestrating the events described in the book of Revelation to get a pure and spotless bride out of the church. This will judge the portions of the church that don't respond to these prophetic events in faith. So, when you say yes to these warnings and these prophetic revelations and the things God says are going to happen, when you on the front end in faith are like, okay, I believe that's going to happen and I want to be ready for it. I want to be a witness to Israel. I want to be a witness to my family. I want the people that I love to know where the safe place is. When you do that, That judges everybody that had the same information but didn't do anything about it. And so that will judge literally families. Some will say, yes, I want to agree with you about that. Some will say, no. It will judge churches. Some will say, yes. And some will say, I don't know. Who could know? It will judge cities. Like literally cities, the fate of cities will depend on the people in it agreeing with God about this. So if you want an example of that, look at the destruction of Sodom where Abraham and God, the angel of the Lord, are talking about the impending judgment of Sodom. And Abraham's like, if there's 40 righteous people in that city, and he said, I'll spare the whole city for 40 righteous people, right? So the, the fate of Kalamazoo actually depends on a certain number of people agreeing with God about this information. It's really important. So if you love the people of this city, Find out what God's going to do. Find out what he wants from you and do it. And you can trust in his mercy, his character, and his consistency. So if he said that about Sodom, we can have confidence that we don't know how many people it would take here to agree with him, but it's not many. But it does require a witness of the the leadership of God in a place, in the geography, to say, we want the leadership of God enough to actually agree with it in faith. Okay, And that's what he's doing right now. So this will judge portions of the church that don't respond to these prophetic events in faith. Simultaneously, God has a plan to bring the remnant of Israel to faith, called the siege of Jerusalem. Jesus prophesied to Jerusalem that the city would not see him again until they welcomed him as Messiah, the son of David. Now, if you know anything about the return of Jesus, you you have to know he's coming to Jerusalem. So this means Jesus isn't going to return until Israel invites him back. I had been in the church most of my life for, until I was about 40 years old before I'd ever heard that there was this prophetic reality that Jesus wasn't coming back until Israel invited him. But it's not, just, it's not just in Matthew 23. It's actually, you can find it in Acts 2. You can find it in several places that the Messiah is going to come when Israel invites him as the son of David. When Israel sees, oh, not only do they invite him as the son of David, they say, oh, we missed it the first time. Tons of Old Testament passages where Israel's going to come to her senses and say, the cornerstone rejected is the chief cornerstone. That we look on the one that we killed with the one we pierced. There's many Old Testament passages about that. So we have to understand, if you want Jesus to come back, and I think you do, I do. I look at the pain in the world and I'm like, there's only one solution and it's Yeshua coming back. He is not going to come back until Israel gets the witness He is our Messiah to a point that creates jealousy in her, and then God pours out a grace to pray called a spirit of grace and supplication where they need something from God, not something from us, something from God to see Jesus as Messiah and cry out to him. But they will want that thing from God when they see us getting it. Does that make sense? So we need to see Oh, I need him all the way. Not just to think I'm fireproof. Not just to have, you know, salvation. I need him here. 
all the way. And when they see that, they will say, I need him here all the way. And God will give them something, not us. So it's easy to start to get confused and think, okay, it's all on us. It's not all on us. It's all on God. Everything is on God. All the weight's on God. Okay, and that's an important distinction. So this is what Jesus prophesied, Matthew 23, 37. This is just before he went to the cross. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. Now, this is a couple days after Palm Sunday when he came into the city. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. So God is, it's his desire that Jerusalem be safe. It's actually his desire even right now. He's still, he still, he doesn't change. He's without a shadow of turning. So even right now, his desire is no pain and suffering for this city. Do you see what I'm saying? I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. So he's not indifferent. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I see you, you shall see me no more till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Baruch Haba, right? This was after this next thing had happened, okay? So the city, people in the city had already cried out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But if you know anything about Matthew 23, you know Jesus looks at his disciples, and there's Pharisees in this same environment hearing this, and he starts to tell them about the Pharisees and how hard-hearted they were, how they wouldn't go in and they barred the gate for anyone else going in. And he's really talking about the spiritual leadership in Israel, not recognizing that he is the son of David. And you might be like, well, then why did he hold the whole city responsible for the religious leaders? And this is why. There are only religious leaders when there are religious followers. There's only, you, you are creating the market for the religious leadership in the earth right now. You are the church. So if you're like, the leaders are like, they're missing it, God would say, you're missing it. There would be no leaders without a market for those leaders. You're creating the leadership paradigm all around you. And when we break from wanting the best, the strongest, the most charismatic, the ones that can gather the big crowds and say just enough to feel okay with God, but not so much to turn people away from the actual gospel of the death of your own self-leadership, we're creating the false environment. Does that make sense? So he's looking at the city of Jerusalem. He's like, I, I wanted to gather you. I came as a child, as a baby. I grew up among you because I want you city, but you want those leaders. That's who you want. Even though you're saying with your mouth, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's not a faith unto breaking from the world statement. It's a momentum statement that they're making. Does that make sense? And it was mostly children that were making it. Okay, so I'm going to read this passage, but I want to give you the context. Matthew 21, 9. Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed, now this is Palm Sunday, cried out saying, Hosanna to the son of David. I mean, they're literally saying, this is the Messiah. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is what Jesus said he needs to hear from the city. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved saying, who is this? But they're supposed to know who this is, right? They're crying out something very prophetic, very specific, and they're in doubt. Who is this? Uh, So the multitude said, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Is he Jesus the prophet? Islam believes he's Jesus the prophet. No, he's the son of God. He is the Messiah. He's the son of David. 
Okay, we, we're supposed to recognize the heart of David or the heart of God in Yeshua. Then Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. Then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what they are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants you have perfected praise? So he was rejected. It was stated who he was prophetically. And then he was rejected by the same people that were stating it. Now, that shouldn't surprise us because these same people crucified him a week later. But it was, you can, you can get the wrong idea that what, what, Je- what Jesus requires is something technical, but he's not looking for something technical. He's looking for heart change, and he'll, he'll know it when he sees it, okay? So don't be like, okay, if somebody just says that in the city. Now, the reason I say that is you've got a lot of people in the city of Jerusalem right now that just want to go up and quickly offer a sacrifice to fill a technicality, and God calls that an abomination. He's not looking for a technicality. He's looking for a heart change, okay? And that technicality is going to be desolating to the city of Jerusalem. It's, it's going to happen. There's going to be people who try to fulfill all the technicalities. And there's people in the church that are encouraging Jewish people to do that because they don't know God either. But he's, you can't fulfill God's desire for a heart connection with a technicality. You can't and they can't. Okay. So this was after uh, this happened. Okay, so Jesus was prophesying the fulfillment of Psalm 118 in that Matthew 23 passage. And in Matthew 21, if you're in the flesh, you'd be like, I think it was fulfilled there. And he would say, no, if you're in the spirit, you can see it's clearly not. Okay, so item G, Jesus was prophesying the fulfillment of Psalm 118. Now, you haven't heard Psalm 118 from me today yet, but you've probably heard it in the past. But that is the story of Israel's acceptance of Yeshua as Messiah. We can know there's so much information in the Bible about what it's going to look like when Israel accepts Yeshua as Messiah. There's political information and governmental information and religious information and Tabernacle of David information about that. So we want to know, okay, what does the Bible actually say is going to happen to fulfill what Jesus said? You're not going to see me until you say this thing. Okay, so Psalm 118 describes the moment Israel turns from the strength of men to the strength of the Lord. Now, it doesn't just describe the moment that Israel and the remnant in Israel sees Yeshua as Messiah. It also describes the moment you see Yeshua as Messiah. So you might, with your mouth, say, I think he's the son of God. I think he's God. I think he's my Lord. But you don't actually give him your heart. And this is what we have to know, is if we let anyone else save us, we're actually not letting God be God. Now, God, he claims to be God over some very specific things. He's Jehovah Nisi. So anytime you hear a name of God, when it's his name, just picture that's his crown, and he's not going to give his crown to anybody else. So Jehovah Nisi, God our banner, Jehovah Rapha, God our healer. You can't actually have him as God if you're, he's not God, your healer. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't go to the doctor. That means you go to the doctor if he says to, and you don't if he doesn't, and you do that in faith. So you work out your salvation in faith. He's Jehovah Rapha. He's Jehovah Jireh, God, our provider. So you, you could be like in financial trouble, and you could be like, God, I need a breakthrough. 
And you've got Uncle Joe, who also has a bunch of money. He could be like, Uncle Joe, I also happen to need a breakthrough. And God would be like, you have two gods here. Do you see what I'm saying? You have to actually decide, God is my God, and I I won't let another be God to me. I won't let another be my rescue. I'll wait for God. Now, that's hard. But God gives grace to wait for God. And that's what he wants Israel to see. And Israel's going to see that when she sees it in the bride. God gives grace to wait for God. No one will get credit in the end. It's not like there's some people that are just like good at waiting for God. They don't worry about stuff. No flesh is going to get credit for this plan. Only people that realize, oh, when I tell God I can't wait for him, but I want to, he gives me the strength to wait for him. In the end, Jesus is going to get all the glory. He's going to get all the glory for this story, okay? So this is Psalm 118. Uh, the, the part of it that I felt like God wanted me to share with you tonight. Okay, this starts in verse 5. I called on the Lord in distress. The Lord answered me. When does the Lord answer? In distress. When you call in distress. Why do you call in distress? Because your flesh doesn't call unless it's in distress. It just doesn't. Not until you repent of your hard-heartedness, your arrogance, and your thinking that when things are good, everything's fine. When did Adam and Eve fall? When things were really good. When things are good, everything's no different than when things are bad. If God's God and he's on the throne, your circumstances don't determine what's good or evil. That was what happened in the fall. Do you see what I'm saying? So in her distress, Israel's going to call on the Lord. That's, this is the, the, the future history of Israel. I just heard a song. The song was called Future History. And I was like, that is brilliant. This is the future history of Israel. I called on the Lord in distress. Then the Lord, ans- the Lord answered me and set me in a broad place. The Lord is on my side. Now, is Israel in a broad place right now? No, she's in a very narrow place. She's got all kinds of alliances and allegiances. And I mean, Israel can't afford her own army. So without the U.S., Israel literally has no army to fight Hamas. Israel can't afford most of everything that's in Israel. Like, literally, it's not like here where the government prints money and builds roads and makes hospitals. In Israel, most of the stuff is built by something called the Jewish National Fund, which is fundraising all over the world. It's public stuff, but it's been donated to the government. Do you see what I'm saying? Israel's not, it's, it's a very precarious state. It is very, it's the newest nation, you know? It's like 50. Uh, 70, 80, or 70, 70 some years old. So we have to understand, like, she's not in a broad place. She's in a very narrow place where she needs, according to the flesh, she needs everybody to help her. But God's like, I did something miraculous. You became a nation again after almost 2,000 years of not being a nation. You don't need anybody but me, right? But it doesn't look that way to the flesh. And none of us, you know, we could look at her and be like, you just need God. And he'd be like, well, let's talk about your life for a second, I made you. You wouldn't be anywhere you are without me. You just need me too, but you reach out to all kinds of places in your heart for help. Maybe not financial help, Maybe, all, but there's all kinds of ways we think we need stuff from people or from God or from the world that we don't have yet, and so we get anxious and afraid. That's how you know because you're anxious and afraid. That's how you can identify those areas where you haven't like settled that God is God and you can trust him, Okay. So this is, but this is what God's doing in Israel. He's bringing her to this point. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is for me among those who help me. Now you could hear that in the flesh and be like, wait, I guess that whoever helps her, that's where the Lord is. 
but what kind of help? So there's a little arrow here on the bottom of page one. Just hang on with me for a second. That arrow's pointing to something that ended up on the next page, but it wasn't when I wrote the notes. So I didn't know what to do, but leave it there because that's where that I, I, I require notes before pages long, just so you know. If you see five pages of notes, I failed somehow. Okay, so the Lord is for me among those who help me. Therefore, I shall see my desire on those who hate me. It's better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. It's better to trust the Lord than to put confidence in princes. And she's saying, I'm learning this lesson. It's better to trust God than to trust people that could help me, okay? Even powerful people that could help me. All nations surrounded me, but in the name of the Lord, I will destroy them. They surrounded me. Yes, they surrounded me, but in the name of the Lord, I will destroy them. Now, right now, all the G7 nations, most of the nations that hate her, basically the UN in a representative form is surrounding Israel right now. There's so many nations surrounding Israel right now. This is, I mean, this hasn't happened like this since Israel became a nation again in 1948. They surrounded me like bees. They were quenched like a fire of thorns, for in the name of the Lord I will destroy them. You pushed me violently that I might fall, but the Lord helped me. Now, even right now, there are little pushes on Israel. Do you see it? Do you see the nations that are helping Israel are also kind of pushing her? Like, you got to stop this war. You, we're going to help you, but you got to stop. We're going to help you, but you got to do this. We're going to help, but you got to. Even right now, the nations are pushing her, but they're going to push her violently. They're going to push, and they have before, okay? You pushed me violently that I might fall, but the Lord helped me. So this is all putting the emphasis back on the Lord. The Lord is the one who needs to help her. The Lord is my strength and, everybody say it, song. Why? Well, this is the way David got the help of the Lord into Israel, was through song. This is so important. And he has become my salvation. When the Lord is her strength and her song, she, he will become her salvation. The voice of rejoicing and salvation is in the tents of the righteous. The, hand of the, the right hand of the Lord does valiantly. Now, the, the tents of the righteous, I'll just give you, a, we're gonna, it's in the notes uh, later, and there's a, a link to the website. In the Holocaust, in World War II, there were people that were Gentiles that helped Israel, like to escape. There are people that hid Jewish people in their homes and then got them out of Germany or got them out of Europe. They're known in Israel as the righteous of the nations. That's what they're actually known as. Israel, Israel is, they understand this reality this way. People that helped her because they loved God, okay? Because they saw the injustice being done to her. So when you see this, you have to understand there's a reality of Israel becoming connected to and jealous of Gentiles, the righteous, that are in tents, in sukkots, in tabernacles, okay? In the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die but live and declare the works of the Lord. The Lord has chastened me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Anybody had this experience where the Lord's chastened you severely, but you didn't go down? Like it was hard and it looked like impossible, it was enough to really get your heart to change, but he didn't let you fall. That's his love and his mercy and his patience, that chastening. So that's where we want to get into praising him and being like, okay, you know what you're doing. You know how to get me pure and spotless before you come back. This is a good thing you're doing, God. And anybody who's ever walked through a season like that, I've walked through a few myself, I would never want to undo them because those are the times I changed the most or the times I needed him the most, okay? So if you're in one of those moments right now, tell him if you don't feel it, and tell him, I want to see the joy of this now. And he will help you. He will actually help you. And it won't be, okay, everything's fine now. 
It will be enough for today to see the joy today. If you stay, if you abide in him, that's what he's looking for. You're going to need him to do this for you forever, like for billions and billions of years. He's just trying to get the flow going right now. Open to me the gates of righteousness. I will go through them. I will praise the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous shall enter. What's the gate of the Lord? Praise. That's what she's saying. I'm learning. Okay, this is the way in. This is what he said to the Pharisees. You won't go in, and you bar the gate to anyone else going in. This was the way David went in. He went in through night and day praise. He set up a tabernacle in Israel, 24 hours a day, 24,000 singers, gatekeepers, and musicians who turned the desolation that Saul left Israel in into a glorious place that was in peace and economic prosperity, that there was, there was an expansion of the nation of Israel and then a uniting of a divided kingdom. This is what God wants to do in Israel even now, okay? And this is what this, the testimony of Psalm 118 is, a testimony of the tabernacle of David being the thing that Israel sees. I'll praise you for you have answered me and have become my salvation. How did, what does it mean if God answers her? What did she do to get answered? She prayed, right? If, if she's saying, God answered me, that means she talked to God before she saw God, right? She's praying. This is a, a, a psalm about deliverance and prayer and praise. I will praise you for you answered me and become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is a direct statement that this is when she's going to see Jesus. This is when she's going to see Yeshua. He is the cornerstone. Uh, this was the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. What was the Lord's doing? Oh, the orchestration of this incredibly hard chastening where the nations tried to push me. They surrounded me like bees, but I called on the name of the Lord, and there was just these righteous people in tents that helped me see that praise was the way to go into the safe place of under the shadow of his wing, right? That's Psalm 91. When Jesus said, I wanted to gather you like a hen gathers his chicks, he was telling her, I'm like David. I'm, this is the heart of David. I want you under the shadow of my wing. I know the safe place for you, but you're going to get a desolate city because you refuse to come in the way that you can come in. That's what he was saying. That's why he went to the temple and turned over the tables of the money changers right after that statement. This is the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Now, you hear this this verse appropriated for the wrong purpose all the time. Like, this is a great day. It's amazing out. Let's rejoice and be glad in it. This is the worst day of her national history. But she's saying, I'm going to choose to rejoice in it because he used the worst day in my national history to get me into his heart. And that's the safest place to be. That's a forever great day, okay? That's what she's saying. Save now, I pray. Oh, Lord, oh, Lord, I pray. Send now prosperity. So this is all happening before Jesus comes back. This is the national statement before Jesus comes back. And then she says, Baruch Haba, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We've blessed you from the house of the Lord. We've blessed you from the temple mount is what that means. God is the Lord and he has given us light. Bind the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. You are my God and I will praise you. You are my God. I will exalt you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his mercy endures forever. So if you follow these little arrows from page one down where you see, okay, they were, they were the righteous in the tents. They were helping me. And then we find out, okay, well, what was the help? Oh, it's this idea of rejoicing and salvation. I will praise the Lord is on page one. This is how I'm going to praise him. Then the next arrow takes us down to the gate of the Lord. You enter it through praise. Then the next arrow takes you down to verse 29. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he's good. His mercy endures forever. Now, this part of the psalm is a song borrowed from somewhere else. And this is big quiz time right now. Where, where is that line borrowed from? Does anybody know? The last one, oh, give thanks to the Lord for he's good, his mercy endures forever. 
There was, a, there was an important battle that a king won for Israel using these words. Jehoshaphat, you win. Vince wins. Yes, this is the song Israel sang when Jehoshaphat put the worshipers in front of the, the warriors and the enemies of Israel killed themselves in the valley below. This is a direct quote to the valley of decision in Joel 3. If you're taking notes, right? valley of decision. What's that? God's gathering all the nations to make war against God in Jehoshaphat's valley, according to Joel 3. So when you hear a bunch of people talking about Joel 2 right now, and a lot of Joel 2 is getting thrown around right now, and that's good, it's right, you can know Joel 3 is coming on the heels of that, which is a war of all the nations against God in the valley of decision in Jerusalem, in Israel. God's gathering the nations to make war against him. Is that because he doesn't like them? No, it's because he wants to save them. And he'll save anyone willing to humble themselves and say, it's, I'm, not, I'm fighting a war that's carnal and I should be fighting a war that's spiritual. I should be fighting a war that's spiritual. This, the fear of man is a snare. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. To trust in man is to doubt the sovereignty, generosity, or power of God. God requires he be our God in all these areas that we kind of talked about already. It's clear that God wants Israel to turn her trust away from allies to himself. So when you see all the nations gathering against Israel, you might be like, well, some of them hate her, but some of them are trying to help her. It's the allies that God is actually jealous of. It's the allies. Do you see? It's because he doesn't want her giving her love to men. He wants her to give her love to to him. So you have to see it with the eyes of the spirit. Otherwise, you see it in the eyes of the flesh. You try to pick good from evil. That's what Adam and Eve were wanting to do. Decide what's good and what's evil from our perspective. That's the worst thing you can do. It will turn you exactly around and you will become a part of the Antichrist takeover of Israel rather than the witness of the bride that it's better to trust God than men. And right now, this is what he's setting up. There are so many nations that want to help Israel. The devil has sent a flood after Israel, and the earth is swallowing it up. Now, the devil, he doesn't understand this. The devil doesn't have the Holy Spirit. He can't see things from the Spirit's perspective. He can only interpret things from his perspective, and he's delusionally pride, prideful. So even it says when he wouldn't have crucified Christ had he known what was going to happen from it, even though there's tons of prophetic passages about what would happen when Jesus was crucified. I mean, he knew it wasn't good because he had Peter say, no, 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 Jesus, don't go to the cross. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan, to Peter. But he didn't understand what was going to happen. Satan does not understand what's going to happen. You don't understand what's going to happen unless the Holy Spirit is helping you. You can think you do, though. You can read these passages and put the puzzle together in your mind and be like, okay, this is what's going to happen, this is what's going to happen, this is what's going to happen. But without the Holy Spirit, you have nothing. The flesh profits nothing. So you have to remember, the devil is not playing with the same deck of cards you are. You have the Holy Spirit. You could be like, well, why would the devil do all this stuff if he knows it's going to turn out bad? He doesn't know. His pride is blinding him. He does not know. And even if he's hearing my words right now, he doesn't believe them. Do you see what I'm saying? Okay. So listen to these passages. Jeremiah 2, 36 to 37. Why do you gad about speaking to Israel? God is speaking to Israel through Jeremiah. So much to change your way. Why do you gad about so much to change your way? Also, you shall be ashamed of Egypt as you were ashamed of Assyria. He's like, you're doing, you're striving so much to change your way, but you're putting all your trust in another nation called Egypt. And he says, you're going to be ashamed of that. 
Okay, you're going to be ashamed of Egypt as you were ashamed of Assyria. It didn't work with Assyria. It's not going to work with Egypt. Indeed, you will go forth from him, from Egypt, with your hands on your head, for the Lord has rejected your trusted allies, and you will not prosper by them. This has been the national history of Israel ever since Abraham. Okay, Isaiah 10, 20. In that day, the remnant left in Israel, the survivors of the house of Jacob, will no longer depend on allies who seek to destroy them, but they will faithfully trust the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. This isn't some crazy theology Tom Stoltz concocted because I'm watching all this stuff. I'm like, okay, that must mean that. This, the Bible is so clear about this. It's Israel's allies that are always the problem. They've always been the problem. So if you're like, man, I just want a president that helps Israel militarily, you're, what you're really saying is, I want an antichrist president. If the, if the president doesn't bow down and say, Jesus, what do you want me to do? And then sends the military, if he's just like, I'm going to do the good thing, the way I interpret it, that's antichrist. You see what I'm saying? We've been talking about this on Sunday mornings, that your flesh will actually turn you right around. You'll do dead works to the flesh thinking you're serving God. And we're supposed to be the witnesses in the earth that, are, that say, there's only one way to help Israel. It's for me to get rid of all my allies that are taking the place of God in my life and that I'd shine as a witness that I could trust in God alone. I really can. And so can you. Jeremiah 4, 30 to 31. What are you doing? Now, this also goes... Two of those, if you're anything like me, and I think you probably are, when you see someone in need and you can help them, your knee-jerk reaction is, I'm just going to help them. That's what God would do. Maybe it's not. There's a lot of people that don't know God because somebody keeps taking God's place in their lives. You're not supposed to be God to people. We're supposed to have the humility to say, I only do what the Father says. Jesus, there are a lot of people Jesus didn't heal. He did not turn the stones into bread when Satan told him to. There's a lot of stuff Jesus left unsaid. He didn't wave his hand and save everybody because he refuses to violate the parameters of love. So it's easy to look at a situation and be like, well, you have the power to help them. Why aren't you helping them? And it might just be because that person is trying to listen to God, right? And when you're in that situation, you could think, you have the power to help me. Why aren't you helping me? And it could just be because I'm listening to God and he's saying, you need to find him, right? And this is something that we all could be a witness of. And we can't preach and pray this for Israel if we don't do it in our own lives. And it's painful to do this. It's, it, you'll be misunderstood if you do this. If you have the power to help somebody and you don't, people in the flesh will misunderstand that. That's where the cross comes from. Okay? And if you don't have a cross, you don't have Jesus. You've got to get a cross. Jeremiah 4, 30 to 31. What are you doing, you who have been plundered? Why do you dress up in beautiful clothing and put on gold jewelry? Why do you brighten your eyes with mascara? Your primping will do you no good. Again, speaking to Israel. The allies who were your lovers despise you and seek to kill you. What does this look like practically? It looks like Israel saying, come partner with us. We're, we're technological giants. We're so good at turning seawater into fresh water. Come, there's economic opportunity here. Come, like we love you. We just want you to be a part of what we're doing. You know, this is the miracle nation. Come be a part of what God's doing. All in an attempt to build a coalition, to build momentum. But we do that too, right? Doesn't the church, isn't this the main way we build churches? We got to break from that. We have to actually say, come. You want to die to yourself, leave yourself like we are? You want to find out how much you dislike people? You want to get together and serve a bunch of weak and broken people and find out how to love people that are like become your enemies at points and you know, like spitefully use you sometimes? Like, there's not a lot of people in the world that are like, man, let me into that church. But there are some. There are some that are looking for truth. And this is what God's doing in these days. He's turning, can you see it? He's turning everything around right now. Things don't make sense. It makes sense to God. 
It makes sense to God. So we got to come up. we got to be like, God, what are you doing right now? I heard a cry like that of a woman in labor, the groans of a woman giving birth to her first child. It's be- it is beautiful Jerusalem gasping for breath and crying out, help, I'm being murdered. Do you know this is God's love? That she would get her to the point where it's beautiful Jerusalem gasping for breath and crying out, help, I'm being murdered. What do you think God's hearing right now with this war in Gaza? There are some people that are crying this out, help, I'm being murdered. Like there's, when, it, when it happens, I just want to tell you, Sam and I were in uh, Jer- Jerusalem about a month ago, and all through the church, people started to talk about one lady. There was a lady in the Nesset, and she said she had experienced one of the mothers of the captives, one of the mothers of the hostages, and she's like, I was just praying, and then my daughter got released. God sees me. It's beautiful. And like the whole country was like, we didn't even know you could know God like this. Like, the Nesset leader was like, I don't really have this kind of faith. I mean, I think we kind of imagine everybody in, you know, Israel's like, loves God, but it's such a secular country. It's a crazy secular country. It was such a powerful witness when this woman was saying, help, I'm being murdered, and God moved and delivered her daughter. Like, it was so powerful. I mean, literally, people were talking to us on the street. People we didn't know were telling us about it. Israel put her faith in Caesar. At that, that Matthew 23 moment when Jesus says this to Israel, Israel decided that she'd rather have Caesar as a lover than Jesus. Okay? What did Caesar give her? Desolation. He came and destroyed the city 40 years later. Okay? Israel put her faith in Caesar rather than Yeshua. She allied herself with Rome against Jesus. She couldn't kill him. She needed Rome to do it. She needed Rome to give permission. Rome destroyed Jerusalem 40 years later. The leaders of Israel were afraid of Rome. That's actually why they rejected Jesus, because they were afraid Rome would come and take away their kingdom. Remember when the disciples started to preach Jesus, and the high priests and the the, uh, Sanhedrin were like, if we don't stop this, Rome's going to come and take away our position. That's what was driving it the whole time, was a fear of Rome. But Rome hated Israel. And so Israel rejected God for people that hated her, thinking that they were her allies. This has happened so many times in Israel's history. It really has. This has happened many times in your history, in the history of the church. This has happened many times. So we have to be a people that are like, we don't need the government to do what only God can do. And if we do, we're false witness. We're false witness. And this, this is so serious because Jesus wants a witness to Israel of people that trust him so that he can come back, okay? The leaders of Israel were afraid of Rome and rejected Yeshua for fear Rome would take away their power. Rome forced Jewish people out of Jerusalem in 150 AD. God judged Israel with Rome, right, her lover, and then he judged the Roman Empire, which split approximately 150 years later under Diocletian. So the final split of the, of the Roman Empire happened to like three or 400 years later, but the first split, the first crack in the, in the whole system happened just 150 years after Rome had destroyed Jerusalem. This is the way God always works. God raised up Babylon to judge Israel. Then he raised up the Medes and the Persians to judge Babylon. Then he raised up Alexander the Greek to judge the Medes and the Persians. Like this is, God uses free will. He uses all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. He uses people's bad intentions. He gives them over to their bad intentions. And then he gives them over to their bad intentions. 
He's just, that's the way he sifts everything, okay? So you have to understand, if we're like a people that are like, yeah, we just want a good, strong political leader with a nice military to go help her, you're inviting not only judgment on Israel, you're inviting judgment on yourself. God will judge every nation that puts its hand to Israel, okay? Um, God has warned Israel of this reality since Abraham. Genesis 20, Abraham lied about his wife Sarah to Abimelech because he was afraid of the king. Did that work out good for Abimelech? No. Did it work out good for Abraham? No. And it really didn't work out good for Sarah. (laughs) Like, the thing that worked out good was trusting God, right? And Abraham learned this in faith in a process. We have to understand this has always been part of the sifting of Israel, okay? Israel became a target of persecution when God selected Abraham. God has been working out her salvation by faith ever since. The same is true of you. When you said yes to Yeshua, you had all kinds of allies in your mind. You didn't break from all of them when you said yes to Jesus. In fact, you probably still haven't broken from all of them now. But God's asking us right now, look at what you trust in. Look at what you're hoping will happen, who you're hoping will help you, who you're hoping will notice you. Sometimes it's just opportunity. If this person knows what I could do, like they would open the door for me and then I'd be able to do it. Well, God, he's the Jehovah Nisi. Like, he's the banner over you. He's the El Roy. He's the God who hears. He's the one who opens doors no one can shut and shuts doors no one can open. If you're looking for someone else to do that for you, you're actually going away from the witness God's looking for, for Israel. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, So that faith that God's looking for, that he's working out in our lives, it will come to the remnant of the nation in a very specific sequence of events, which we call the Siege of Jerusalem. This is page three of the notes, item two. The events of Psalm 118 in the moment Jesus prophesied in Matthew 23, they're the same thing. So Jesus is in Matthew 23, he's quoting Psalm 118. Those events, right, uh, will happen in a very specific moment described in Zechariah 12. This is what it says in Zechariah 12, 1 to 10. The burden of the word of the Lord against Israel. Thus says the Lord who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundation of the earth, and forms the spirit of man within him. Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of drunkenness to all the surrounding peoples when they lay siege against Judah and Jerusalem. And it shall happen in that day, I will make Jerusalem a very heavy stone for all people. All who would heave it away will surely be cut to pieces, though all nations of the earth are gathered against it. Which nations aren't going to gather against Israel? None nations, all the nations of the earth. And this is, there's a probably, I can think of three off the top of my head where it says this exact same thing. There's, there's more than that, though. There are several passages that say all nations. So this has implications for your end-time eschatology. You will hear a charismatic invention called goat nations and sheep nations. There are some nations, there are sheep nations. Like God's, they're, they're inclined to help Israel, ally nations. Then there's these goat nations. They're stubborn. They don't see the value of Israel. They're enemy nations to Israel. From what you've already learned tonight, is that a valid theology? <laughs> no. <laughs> the allies are the problem. Okay? So when you read in Matthew 25 about God gathering all the nations, and then he sorts them as a shepherd which separates sheep from goats, he's talking about people in nations. There's a remnant in every nation of faithfulness to God. There's also a contingent of rebellion to God, and if you're in the flesh, you wouldn't know the difference. They'll look the same to you. That's why he's talking about in Matthew 25, the five foolish bridesmaids and the five wise bridesmaids, the ten talents, the way that the servants handled them, all servants of God. So there's goat people. They need to be pushed from behind. 
right? And then they think other people need to be pushed from behind because they do. And then there are sheep people. They're like, I just want to go where God wants me to go. And they believe that about other people too because that's the way they see it. And God's looking to separate sheep from goats, wheat from tares, evil from wicked, wise from foolish. It's all talking about the same thing, okay? So when you, when you think about the nations, don't get caught in this trap of thinking, okay, that's a, that's a sheep nation because they're trying to help Israel. Not necessarily, but there are sheep in that nation. There are people that love Israel in Iran, but Iran's trying to wipe out Israel. <laughs> there are people that love Israel in Gaza, but we have to understand the devil, he's twisting things around. He's getting man to fight man. And God just wants a witness of people that put no trust in man. We put all of our trust in the Lord. We can get above the fray and we can speak truth and love to the places where the enemy is having a field day in the flesh. Okay? So when you see or verse 1, Zechariah 12:1, the burden of the word of the Lord against whom? Against these nations? Against Israel. Wait, this is, a, this is a prophetic word against Israel. But this prophetic word is the literal prophetic word that results in the salvation of Israel. So when you see this, a prophetic word against Israel, a prophetic word against Syria, a prophetic word against Damascus, a prophetic word against Saudi Arabia, you have to understand God is for everybody. This is his plan to shake everything that can be shaken and find out what won't be shaken where people will come to the place of peace. He's not against, this isn't against Israel. If you read this in the flesh, you'd think, okay, he's mad at Israel, so he's doing this. Or if you, specifically, if you read oh, the burden of the, word of the Lord against Damascus, you'd be like, okay, he's against Damascus. No, he's not against any, anyone. He's not against anybody he made. This is what he does to extract out of every nation people who will see that they can't live without him. And that's what's happening in this passage, okay? So he says, in that day, when all the nations of the earth gather against it, and all these people are trying to move Jerusalem, what are they trying to move Jerusalem to? Why, why would they want to move Jerusalem? Why would the nations try to move Jerusalem? Because of the Temple Mount. That's the spiritual reason. But why? why? I mean, why, when we just listen to the nations, what are the, what's the problem the nations have with Israel? They won't share? They won't play nice? Do the nations that want to share want to share? No. They want Israel gone. So Israel feels like she has really good reasons for not moving, right? And the nations feel like they have really good reasons for trying to make her move. And all the nations are coming to the point where like, we got to fix this Jerusalem problem. So when all the nations lay their hand on Jerusalem, what's it going to look like? Diplomatic solutions with armies enforcing them. That's what it always looks like. That's what it's always looked like. Okay, so don't get the wrong idea about this, about how dramatic it has to be. You're literally seeing the heart of this, the spirit of this right now. Now, that shouldn't surprise you because in, in John, in 1 John, he says, we know it's the end because we're looking for the Antichrist, but there's many Antichrists already. That was 2,000 years ago. The spirit of the Antichrist is alive and well in the earth, and we, would, we see it playing out all the time, not just in the nations. We see it playing out in the church. We see it playing out in, the, in our families, in the way we watch the news, so we have to understand, we, play, we see it playing out in the way that we want people to help us instead of waiting for God to do the thing that only God could do, where we want opportunity, or we want ministries to grow, or there's all kinds of things that we want, that we want for God, but we don't want to wait on God in them, right? So this is, it, this is not a, oh, Israel, you got a hard time coming. This is a whole earth. We got to learn how to trust God, okay? It says, in that day, says the Lord, I will strike every horse with confusion and its rider with madness. I will open my eyes on the house of Judah and will strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. So he's saying, in that day, 
that this happens, when they all lay their hand to Jerusalem and try to move her, I'm going to actually do something supernatural with the armies that come against Jerusalem. And the governors of Judah shall say in their heart, the inhabitants of Jerusalem are my strength in the Lord of hosts, their God. Now, you have to understand, there's many prophetic passages about the city of Jerusalem, what happens in this time. The city of Jerusalem is going to mostly be empty when this happens. There's only a few people left. It's called the remnant. There's going to be a remnant in Jerusalem of Jewish people that are faithful to God. And, it's, and I'm going to show you this passage in just a second. We've got five minutes left. God's not going to let that, that remnant be cut off from the city. It says it in the, in the word. But there's also a remnant of believers in Yeshua that are in the city. Now, we know this because there's two witnesses there for sure that are prophesying and calling down judgment. But we also know that God said it's not right. Jesus said it's not right for a prophet to die anywhere but in Jerusalem. God's going to fill the city of Jerusalem with prophetic witness in the tabernacle of David. He's going to fill it. And so we want to be a part of that right now. We can pray for that right now. We can get vision for it right now. We can change ourselves right now. We can support it spiritually. We could believe it. We could see it. We could embrace it. And many people will miss it entirely because they don't know this. Many people will miss this entire thing. And they will come on airplanes, I believe, to Jerusalem. They'll say, Jesus, I cast out demons in your name. I did many wonders in your name. What do you mean I'm not here with you now? And he's going to say, I never knew you. Get away from me, you who practice lawlessness. Yes, you were doing all the things that looked like the church. That was even worse because you're misdirecting people from this one thing that I'm doing in the bride and in Jerusalem. Okay. So it says, in that day, I will make the governors of Judah like a fire pan in the woodpile and like a fiery torch in the sheaves. They shall devour all the surrounding peoples on the right hand and on the left. Now, this, there's not very many people. But Jerusalem shall be inhabited again in her own place, Jerusalem. That's what it's saying. It's like Jerusalem's almost empty, but there are still some leaders left, and I'm going to give them so much power. The Lord will save the tents of Judah first, so the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem shall not become greater than that of Judah. Judah is the area surrounding Jerusalem. He's saying, I'm going to start in the country. In that day, the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. The one who is feeble among them in that day shall be like David, and the house of David shall be like God, and like the angel of the Lord before them. He's talking about a heart of David reality. That's what Israel's looking for. They're looking for one who is the son of David. It shall be in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Which nations is God going to seek to destroy? All of them. <laughs> and I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. The event described above will be worse than the Holocaust. So when you read this little, you know, this is nine verses in Zechariah 12. This, there's a whole lot of process in these nine verses. There's a whole lot of pain. There's women literally eating their children. There are people that are in confusion. There's people grabbing hold of anybody and being like, you lead us. And they're like, I don't, I, I don't want to lead this thing either. There are people fleeing. There are people hiding. There are people confused in pain. This is what's coming. But in this darkness, there's going to be a light that shines of you can trust God. You don't have to hide. You don't have to run. Look at the power he's putting on people that just ask. That's what was happening in Acts 2. It was the only city in the entire world where it was illegal to be a follower of Yeshua. And God put so much power on those believers. It says none of the rest dared join them, but many were added to their number daily. Like the whole city was fighting God. And God was revealing a witness of power to those who would just pray. 
That's what all they did. That's all they, that's literally all they did was pray in the upper room 10 days and God poured out his spirit and left a witness that started to save thousands of Jewish people at a time. That's what he wants to do in these last days. The, 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 te- the two witnesses, when they die, those three days that they're dead, that's the greatest evangelical moment the earth is ever going to see. It says that when they are resurrected and the, there's an earthquake in the city, 7,000 people die in that earthquake. It's a city of millions. But 7,000 people in a desolate city is a lot of people. And it says the rest gave him glory. That's when the remnant does this. This is when they look on him with grace and supplication. So there's many touch points that all intersect in this moment. When you read about the two witnesses, you're actually reading about this moment. When you read about the, the Michael standing up and the angels in heaven warring against Satan's angels and Satan being cast down and war against Jerusalem and then war against the church, you're actually reading about the events leading up to this. There's a ton, if you can understand the siege of Jerusalem, that will open up in all the other eschatological events that we're supposed to be watching and praying for. Does that make sense? Okay, so half of the city, oh, um, it's important to understand the full counsel of Scripture. Most will be offended by the events God has planned to bring Israel to this moment of faith. Most people in the church will be offended. They will say, a good God would never let this happen. And they will align with political leaders and military leaders that want to help Israel not realizing that those are the very allies that God is judging. Hear what I'm saying. If you take a stand on this, you will be hated by friends, by family, by neighbors. You'll be hated by your city. Are you ready for that? You're not if you're offended when people misunderstand you now. You're not ready for that when small things become big things that make you harden your heart and isolated. You're not ready for that when you compromise what's true in order to get along with people. You have to grow in this now. If you won't grow in it now, you will definitely not grow under this pressure. This is what he's warning of. He's saying, take this seriously now. Take your own sanctification. You can know in your marriage. You can know the way you relate to your spouse. You can know the way you relate to your kids. You can know the way that you're afraid of what's going to happen. The way that you make other things your God instead of God, right? We could know. This is why he gave us a prayer room. So half of the city of Jerusalem will be captured by the nations, but the remnant will not be sent out of the city. This is Zechariah 14, 1 to 4. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst, for I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, the women ravished. Half of the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. That's who he's going to leave in the city. People that are ready to receive Yeshua as Messiah. They don't know it yet, though. He just knows the people that the exact right events will produce this cry. I'm being murdered, and he will come and save them. He says, it's my beautiful city that's crying out to me. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. The siege will start as a regional skirmish against Israel and her allies from Syria and Egypt. So this is that we know from the prophetic passages in Daniel 11, 40, 45, I've taught on this a bunch of times, so I'm not going to go over this right now for the sake of time. This siege will start as a regional war Against Israel and her allies, the war will start from Syria and Egypt attacking Israel and her allies. The Antichrist, the leader of the end-time Babylon, who is her main ally, will be drawn into the war and lay siege to Jerusalem for her own good like Caesar. This will trigger the worst moment in time Israel has ever experienced. That's Daniel 12.1. At that time, when that happens, Michael will stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people, and there should be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation even to that time. And at that time... Your people shall be delivered. That's talking of the remnant, right? That's what we were talking about last week. Everyone who is found written in the book. At the same time war erupts against Israel and then Jerusalem, Satan will attack the church. Ali, you want to come back up? 
I'm going to read you Revelation 12, 15, 17, while Alia comes up here and starts playing. You're seeing this right now. When the Al-Aqsa flood came against Israel and the nation started to swallow it up in there, even to this day, still providing political cover for Israel to fight, Satan went against the church. There are several ministries in the last month and a half that have been decimated. And they're almost all ministries that pray for Israel. This is happening right now. Now, it might not be happening the one, but it's happening enough that you should respond like it's the one. It's happening in your generation. John, if he saw this, he'd be like, many antichrists. This is the last hour. We've got to get out of our dull doubt about whether it's worth it to give him everything right now. If you want that, stand with me. So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman. I'm asking God, give us eyes to see enough. You don't have to see everything. You just need to see what God wants you to see for the next step you need to take. That he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. The serpent sends his flood after Israel. But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of its mouth. And the dragon was enraged with Israel, with the woman. And he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Father of glory, in this room, will you give us eyes to see what you're doing? God, that we would know that we have so much more than the devil, that we have the spirit of the living God inside of us, that we have what Israel needs to see. God, would you show us how the devil's warring against us just being like Jesus right now? How the devil's warring against patience. How the devil's warring against forgiveness, faith. Just moving forward with you, God. Just being willing to forget what's behind us and run this race. God, would you come? Would you release vision of the joy that is set before us, God? Of the joy that's set before you, seeing your people finally see Yeshua, your son, who's paid so much. You've paid so much, Father. God, would you give us eyes to see what's happening all around us right now. Give us minds to understand how we can break from idolatry right now, how we can be witnesses no matter where we're at, that the Spirit does something. He does a lot with a little. In Jesus' name, amen.